0: I'm standing in front of the Excel Exhibition Centre in London's glamorous Docklands. Uh, I was here last for this podcast two years ago uh, for the Learning Technologies Exhibition and Conference, which is the biggest show of its kind in the UK, possibly in Europe, very important. A couple of months later, it was a nightingale hospital treating overflow casualties. From the pandemic. pandemic was on us, in person events were out of the window. Uh, now, after two years, they're back. So, I'm here to see what those two years have done for the industry and where we're going next. Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer.
1: And now, guess what? Learning is cool! Learning is cool!
2: Knowledge is power. Knowledge, education.
0: Learning. It was great to be back at Learning Technologies. I met a lot of old friends, made a few new ones, spent time with people who were, no exaggeration, almost ecstatic about being back together again in person after two years of periodic isolation. Zoom meetings. More importantly, for the purposes of this podcast, the show provided a unique opportunity to take the temperature of the learn tech industry at a pivotal moment in its development. Kate Fitzgerald, Head of Fact, tell us why at such an important event. Hack facts.
3: With more than 9,000 attendees from 50 different countries, 200 seminars and 200 exhibitors, Learning Technologies is Europe's leading showcase of organisational learning and the technology used to support learning at work. Since its early days in the late 90s, it has continued to grow alongside the industry, getting bigger year on year. A major conference runs alongside the exhibition, featuring talks from more than 90 of the learning industry's foremost speakers, thinkers visionaries and practitioners.
0: I took the opportunity while I was there to buttonhole some of the industry's leading figures and get their hot takes on the two big questions that I'm guessing will be uppermost in a lot of learning professionals' minds. Hot takes. First of those questions, what happened in the last two years to learning? What's happened to learning? Nothing. Says Don Taylor, chair of the conference and a recent
2: guest on The Learning Hack in the sense that the human brain has evolved in Homo sapiens over 300,000 years and many millions of years before that. A two-year blip is not gonna make a huge difference to the process of learning in the brain, and we shouldn't forget that. Glad Don saw through my trick question there. However, if we look at how learning is conducted and supported in the corporate space, a huge amount has changed in the sense that fundamentally, two things happened. Firstly, we recognized that we didn't have to get people physically together to learn. Now, we know that, but the realization came very hard and fast in March 2020, and everything changed. We'd spent, from the beginning of the LMS and the e-learning systems from 1999, we'd spent two decades getting up to January 2020, and we'd reached the point where roughly half of training delivery took place online and half took place in the classroom. Within three months, it shifted to 100%.
0: Another Past Learning Hack guest, Bob Mosher, echoes the rapid nature of the change within organisations.
4: I've seen an acceleration in technology and adoption to learning technology like I've never seen before. A lot of organisations couldn't get a a, a virtual technology in in their building for years, had to stand one up in a month.
2: So, much more digital. But was it good quality digital? It wasn't all perfect, it wasn't all right, there were many mistakes made. Not at all right,
0: as far as Miriam Neelam was concerned
1: too content focused, too tech focused, um, too quantity focused. Lots of content, lots of stuff, lots of different tools and technologies, but not enough thinking around what do we actually need to prioritize? You know, Where should we really focus our energy in um, designing or providing support around things that um, where people really need the support and guidance to perform better and to improve their skills.
0: Another past Burning Hat guest, okay, let's just take it as read that everybody has been on the podcast. Laura Overton senses a missed opportunity.
5: I think one of the things that I've observed the most is the fact that whilst we've had a chance to experiment and try things, we're actually using technology to apply that technology to just allow us to carry on doing what we always used to do. We've actually um, missed that opportunity to try new things out, to apply learning science back into the way that we create learning opportunities and experiences.
0: But good things for learning and development have come out of this difficult time. As Bob Mosher, the workplace learning guru, points out.
4: Clearly the humanitarian side of what happened is indescribable. The, the the interesting thing about it on the learning and L&D side is that I've seen, there's, there's about four things that I've seen that I think have been pretty miraculous. Number one is, I've talked to thousands of learning professionals across the globe through, through Zoom and other technologies over the last two years, and the degree to which we are being pulled into strategic conversations and organizations is like nothing I've seen in my 30 years in education. You know, uh, I know of a learning director who had only seen his CEO speak on at meetings and town halls, called him two weeks into COVID and had him in his office helping him with a new strategy for learning. So I think we're being pulled into a more remarkable role. And a lot of it is how we're playing a more powerful role in the workplace and workflow learning and enabling people at the moment of need when they're in their homes scattered in places they've not been before. So I think the receptiveness of our buyer to be more innovative and allow us to do things we've not been allowed to do for budgetary and other reasons has changed significantly.
0: It hasn't all been about doubling down on the usual ways of doing things.
2: Yes, certainly, we continue to deliver content to people, but other things flourished instead of the traditional content dump. Two things in particular, getting people together synchronously and getting people together asynchronously. So social learning took off. So where are we now?
0: The pandemic undoubtedly gave a boost to the industry. But what comes next as we learn to live with COVID? Will we all just slip back into the old normal? Is
2: digital delivery in for a dip? You can't go higher than 100%. And that's what it's been. So it can only go down.
1: Yeah, we might slip back. I don't know. I... um... I'm always a bit of a cynical person, so I I don't dare to predict.
2: Will it go down to 50%? No. And that's the key thing. We're going to get to a point where it drops back to a certain extent. And people will be using face-to-face for the right reasons. Sometimes it's the best way of doing something and for the wrong reasons. People just want to get together. Actually, that's not a bad reason to get together. and We should be taking that very seriously. But it doesn't need always have a learning wrapper around it. You can get together just because it's a good thing to get together. I'd much rather people got together, not for a course, but in order to exchange and surface and share tacit knowledge. I think that's a much better use of the physical space.
5: I think there's a danger of us going back to pure face-to-face because we've not fully exploited the opportunities that digital can give us, not only for connecting with people for learning, but also helping them to practice, helping them to reflect, helping them to own that learning space. So unless we know how to work and thrive and connect and learn in the new digital environment, then we will go back to what we always used to know. So now is the opportunity for us to take advantage of those spaces. Um, But unless we do, I do think we will go back to the classroom because it's where we're comfortable, it's where we're familiar, but it's where we're at most danger of becoming extinct. I
1: hope not. I hope we will... Try to find our focus and and do what's best for the people in the organisations that we work in.
0: Does Miriam Neeland see any signs of that happening?
1: I, I see pockets of it. I see people who really try to think about learning in a more holistic way. Surely, like you know, workplace learning more than L&D, as in what we what we've always done. I mean, people are trying, um, but I still think um, there's there's a lot that needs to happen.
0: Bob Mosher sees signs of a positive effect on learners of the last two years.
4: As horrific as I think the pandemic has been for the worker, uh, the stress, the upheaval, I, I, what I've been excited about is I think they all have also emerged a a, a more um, determined learner. They've survived if they feel that way or not in some miraculous ways. And so I think they've learned some skills and some confidence in themselves in in getting through this in ways that they might not have been before. So I'd like to see us as an industry uh, take advantage of that and enable the learners with things around workflow learning and other things that I think they might have been a bit receptive to uh, using or wanting to be a part of before this entire thing began.
0: So how do we feel about the future? what are the challenges we should focus on.
5: I'm excited about the future, I'm excited about the experiments that we can do, but we have to actually, as Matthew Syed said today, get out of perhaps a fixed mindset, rely on what's worked to us in the past and get into that growth mindset and really release us into the full potential of digital.
0: Paul McIlvaney, Executive Chair at Learning Pool sees hybrid as the biggest immediate challenge.
2: So I think when we think about the future, everyone crosses their fingers, John, because uh, we all hope that, that what we're entering into is a, is a sustainable future. Um, for me, I think that the next phase of this is, is probably more complicated than, than the phases that have gone before. Uh, hybrid is difficult. If, if everyone is online, then you adapt to that and you deliver. If everyone is in a classroom or in a face-to-face environment, um, then, then that, that sets the tone. But what I think we're going into now is something that's very hybrid um, where you've got a real mix of that. And that's not just in workplace learning, but in in workplace sort of behavior and business as usual. Um, So I think there's some real challenges in that, uh, but I'm not sure whether, um, and and inevitably there will be challenges that come on the technology and content side that we'll have to respond to. But but I think generally speaking, the, the industry feels like it's in a pretty optimistic place for... For dealing with that, but it's never going back to January 2020. Never.
0: Thanks to everybody for your hot takes. Hot takes. As well as scooting around the exhibition stands, I also attended the conference. There will be a roundup of that later in this episode, where ably aided and abetted by old friend of the podcast, Caroline Ford of Novartis. I discuss the talks we saw, but for now, let's take a look at some of the major themes that emerged from the event overall with our Head of Themes, Jay Curtis.
3: One thing that came out with quite startling clarity, John, is that a lot of people seem to think that hybrid just isn't working as a delivery method for learning.
0: And we'll be digging into that theme in a future episode of this podcast.
3: Skills are big on everybody's agenda, not surprisingly, and workflow learning was very much centre stage. AI and neuroscience also continue to be popular themes and, of course, the way that learning systems are developing to cope with changing needs.
0: So to pick up on one of those themes, I recorded an interview with Paul Matthews at the show on the subject of workflow learning and learning workflows. Paul's been on the podcast before talking about learning transfer. He's well-respected in learning and always has something interesting to say. Give it a listen. Paul, it's so great to meet you in the flesh.
6: Yeah, yeah, it's been oh. a while.
0: Yeah, uh, it, the last time we did this uh, was virtually on the podcast. Yes. Uh, we had headphones and, and mics. We didn't have to shout over the ambient noise of the So I'm trying to project a bit yeah. now to, to get above that noise, which is great. Um, earlier, I was talking to Bob Mosher. You did a great uh, session for us on learning transfer. He's the kind of workflow learning man. But I gather that in the interim, you've been doing some work on learning workflows. Yeah. Now, how is that different from workflow learning?
6: Well, workflow learning or learning in the workflow is where people are learning in the workflow. I mean, it's it's self-descriptive, and people are learning either formally or informally or as they go about their daily uh, work and and they'll learn from colleagues, they'll learn from wherever. Having said that, um, if you want someone to target a change in behavior, you've got to create what I call a learning workflow. That is a sequence of actions for them to get to where they want to be. Because in order for someone to change their behavior, which if you think about it, it's usually the primary reason for the majority of learning and development initiatives of one sort or another, is to change that behavior, they're gonna to have to do a number of things spread over time right. to get good at something and yeah. embed it and sustain it so it's there for the long term. Um, now, as soon as you start talking about a sequence of actions spread over time, you're describing a workflow. Right. And and of course, in these days of digitalization, workflows are being put into lots of other parts of companies all over the place. So the, the consumable workflow is not new. Having said that, Thinking about a learning workflow, I think is relatively new. Even right. though perhaps we've been doing bits of that for a while. Right. So I think we need to disambiguate. I do love that word. Disambi- uh, disambiguate. Yeah, yes. Of a learning workflow, which is a, a structured thing that we're building, right, and a sequence of activities to then deliver to someone, as opposed to learning in the workflow, which is learning while you're at your desk or, or wherever.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now the distinction that comes up quite a bit when people are talking about workflow learning is that not all of it is learning. In other words, not all of it is stuff that has to be remembered until you're in your 60s or whatever. Sometimes it's really about information that you need to do a particular job or process or or, or whatever. And it's that kind of courses versus resources thing. How does a learning workflow um, embrace that distinction? Well, a learning
6: workflow may not actually involve that much learning new stuff in terms of new facts or information. So it may be largely a behavioral change or a skills change. So I kind of know how to do it, but I haven't yet got enough experience, enough practice, right, um, enough confidence to do what I think I might be able to do anyway. Conversely, it might also be, I have to learn a shed load of knowledge first before I can even attempt to do this. Right. But also within a learning workflow, you've got to think about the environment that that person is doing it within. In other words, what help have they got? Is their manager available? Is there a, a colleague available? Right. So it's not just um, a, this thing that's separate. It's actually usually embedded into the work, the main workflow itself. Right. So a lot of while you are uh, and fulfilling the activities in a learning workflow, you're often in the main workflow itself. Right. And this is where it gets a little confusing obviously. Yeah. Um, but it is a separate thing that you would construct. So it's a sequence of steps that you construct. But clearly, To go through those steps, it's always easier to have a coach or a manager or a buddy or someone to work with you through that. And and, and We've we've proven with the apps and and things that we build that actually that works way better and people will end up getting that behavioural change. And then of course, if you're looking for that behavioural change, part of that learning workflow should be a measurement step in there, looking at how do we measure whether we've achieved that behavioural output, have we changed the needle on the dial? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's this whole thing about measurement as well. It's got to be part of that process. Right.
0: So you mentioned an app there. We're at the learning technologies yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. What, what is the role of technology in supporting a learning workflow ideally?
6: Well, scalability, primarily. I mean, I could right. create a simple learning workflow for someone to start getting better at feedback skills, for example, a really simple example. And I could roll it out to two or three people. And yeah. say, well, come, please go and do these steps over a period of time, and I'll give you a bit of coaching or whatever along the way. But as soon as I try and scale that, I might have five activities for them to do a fortnight over a two month period or something. Okay. You scale it up to 10, 20, 100 people, you're delivering thousands and thousands of activities. Yeah. So you need that's digital help to manage that delivery to them, yeah. to manage the comms. But also to track who's actually keeping up with that workflow. Right. Because there's there's three fundamental things about a learning workflow that you need. You need to have a destination. Right. You think of this in sat nav terms. Yeah. So with a sat nav, you always know where you're going. Edinburgh, for example, which is not here. We're at learning tech, you're going to Edinburgh. So I have a destination, and your destination you can create from a learning perspective by doing a behavioral needs analysis and saying, but what's the observable set of behaviors that I need at the end of it? Right. The second piece, like well, the SatNav does, is give you a sequence of steps. Right. Now, and they ideally are well designed. We trust Google SatNav. Yeah. So you design a sequence of steps in a learning workflow. And then the third critical factor is that people adhere to those steps. They follow them. Okay. So, like I said, Nav, if you follow the steps, you will always get to your destination. Yeah. So, if you have a well designed workflow that you can manage people in such a way that they follow it, you are pretty much guaranteed to get to your behavioral destination.
0: Okay. And can um, uh, could a learning manager, say, or a, you know, a, a CLO, use the type of kit that they're selling at this show, like an LMS or an LXP? that comes sort of off the shelf, as it were, to do this, how bespoke to some, I mean, we're talking about the electronic performance support system yeah, yeah. in a sense, which uh, to some extent, goes back yes. to Gloria Deere in the 90s. Yeah. Um, can you kind of bolt your LMS, LXP into that and make it do that work for you? I think some have some aspects
6: of it, but yeah. from what I understand of the ones I've seen that I'm by no means an LMS expert, no, the answer is not. Right. Um, which is why I talk about a learning workflow platform or an LWP. So a new genre. I've created no. A, I've created a new acronym. So no, please, no. Um, but if you're going to deliver that learning workflow, yeah. you've got to. You're actually delivering activities, whereas right. the LXP's and LMS's are all about delivering content. Yes. And some of them do talk about expand that over time. But they still talk about delivering micro content after a main event, for so it's still content delivery. Right. Whereas we're much more talking about activities that someone does, which could be something simple like sitting in the corner with your favourite drink and contemplating your purpose as a manager, for example. Yeah. That would be a task in a workflow, as is fulfilling, doing an assignment, or talking to colleagues. Or inspecting your work area or doing a number of other things or getting assessed by a capable colleague to see well can i do this particular task
0: yeah i have seen an lxp that had those type of activities mm. put in that can be kind of sequenced yeah, yeah. so you would do a bit of content yeah then you know you you might kind of reflect on that or discuss yeah. it or read a book yeah yeah and it, it seems to be possible to do that within a technology yeah cap.
6: some of them i'm sure have as I said, elements of it. But I've oh. personally not seen one that actually stitches that all together yeah. in a way that then has the behavioral assessment and the other bits, but right. also brings in the other immediate stakeholders like the Align Manager, yeah. you know perhaps a, a, a subject matter expert and so on into that equation right. to help people progress through that workflow effectively.
0: So are you talking about a bespoke software development? Well, no, we've got an off-the-shelf platform that does that and oh, right.
6: and, and I've, actually become aware of one other one today at the show here who's doing something similar but they're the only other people and it was fascinating talking with them is is they said oh my god we thought we were alone in the universe doing this yeah i said well no you're not we're doing it as well so it was actually quite intriguing meeting someone else who also is doing something in in this genre um and and it it is different and we will happily this will sit alongside an lxp or an lms Without you know a lot of uh, overlap or conflict, yeah. So you can still host your repository of content and stuff on the LMS because part of a learning workflow is often content delivery. Yes, it's, it's, we're not saying that's not the right thing to do. It's just that you've got to wrap a lot of other stuff around there it.
0: There is other stuff to get yeah. the
6: learning transfer and the desired yeah. behavior change at the end destination.
0: And this has been a problem, isn't it? That people have been very focused on content delivery. Yeah, yeah. And actually, there's a, a lot more to it than that. Maybe in it. it, it to summarize what you're saying is it perhaps that people need to unstick themselves with this kind of singular focus on content and realize that content is only one part of yeah. a learning workplace. i
6: think that there's a fundamental question difference is i tend to ask the question what behaviors do we want I mean, how do we deliver those behaviors yeah. whereas usually l and d people start from well what content are we going to deliver and how are we going to do it yeah what channel and things like that and yeah. you know and then they go technical so how do I deliver that content is a very different question to how do I deliver that behavior? Right. And as soon as you think, how do I deliver that behavior, you automatically have to start thinking learning workflows because it's the only way yeah. to reliably yeah. deliver content. Right. You, you get the occasional road to Damascus conversion, You know, don't get me wrong, but yeah. by and large, you're going to have to deliver a learning workflow yes. or the learner's going to have to self-create that for themselves to create their own practice and experimentation, yeah. and some learners will. And they're the ones who are, like Brinkerhoff says, one in six will come through a training course and grab it and run with it. Yeah. So they're going to do it anyway. Yeah.
0: If I can make um, a typical learning hack, handbrake, turn, a <laughs> change of topic now. Go for it. <laughs> um, I'm asking everybody what they think has happened in the last two years. I mean, obviously, you know, there's been a pandemic, but what has that done to learning and to particularly the issues you deal with, such as learning transfer and workflow learning and learning workflows? I, I think it's put it back a little bit in a sense, because
6: people at the start of the pandemic said, oh, my God, we've got to go online, and they were focused on the standard content delivery online. Yeah. So a lot of the LMSs, LXPs, they did really, really, very, very well. Those were able to pivot. Um, I think also what's happened over the last two years is that learning has got a better brand in the organisation. Yeah. because the management realized that learning was a pretty big deal when suddenly everybody had to change the way they did their jobs by working remotely or what well, yes. a significant proportion of people had to change how things happened yeah and they had to roll out a lot of information quickly around how to handle a pandemic in a work environment yeah. I think the risk now is that we kind of sit back a little bit and let that roll on we've got to Take the prototypes that we designed in those two years and now productize them. We've got to do, we've got to get clever, but we've also got to take advantage of this kind of window of opportunity we have, where management's given us a bit more credibility, brand image, yeah. responsibility as learning and development, yeah. and they invited us to the table to come and help. We're stuck with a pandemic. Yeah. While we're there, let's make take advantage of it. And I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not seeing that many people doing that. So I think that's a. An opportunity people should grab right now. Quite frankly.
0: Yeah, you're echoing themes that I've had from talking to other people at the show. Actually, yeah. that, that thing of how um, suddenly, when all the lockdowns started, L and D became much more of strategic focus. Yeah. Because yeah. how are we going to do it without without yeah. that? And also, there's a feeling that we don't want to lose what we kind of um, mm. what we gained. The ground yeah. We gained in the, over the last couple yeah. of years. And the other danger, of
6: course, too, is that so much was done so quickly. It's amazing what people did. And I'm full of admiration yeah. for the speed at which what some people delivered. But of course, and, and it wasn't just learning and development. Lots of other things happened in companies as well that were lightning yeah. fast compared to what anybody could have thought. But of course, that precedent's been set. And so now there might be a lot more pressure from senior teams to say, well, Amy, you did it before, let's do it again.
0: You know? Yeah. Um, so
6: that, that's interesting as well to see how that plays out.
0: Right. And how do you see things developing over the next few years Um, in in Consenso? Is this kind of message getting through to people who think about workflow learning?
6: I think it is. I'm seeing a lot more, uh, and at the show here today, I've seen a lot more, and you've mentioned one that's doing that as well in LXP, that where they are taking at least micro content delivering, following on from a main event or something. So there is this conscious awareness that things have to spread out over time. Yeah. I think that's one thing I have been noticing and that's becoming more and more at play. It's a lot more time and chronologically focused than event focused. But of course as soon as you do that and you've got tasks in that time, you've got a learning, you've got a workflow. Yeah. So you know, by, by kind of by definition. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. now
6: how you design and populate that workflow of course will have a big impact on whether that's a successful workflow yeah. in terms of getting the behavior change you want.
0: You mentioned time, time is our enemy, I'm afraid we have okay. to, to wrap out now. It could easily go on for another half an hour or oh, I'd love to. <laughs> Let, let's get together again later. Let's do that, show. that'd be great. Thanks thank very much, you, great to talk. Thank you very much. Paul. OK. In the struggle against the forgetting curve that learning people are engaged in every day, there are no magic formulas, but there is science. For well over a century, psychologists have known that the spacing effect unlocks deep learning and helps learners power through to peak performance, and yet who uses it, despite the fact that modern learning systems like LXPs make it almost easy? I've written a white paper with LearningPool that shows how you can use the spacing effect to beat the forgetting curve. Download it now. The Learning Hack Podcast is supported by Learning News, the learning sector's newswire. Rob and his team are good friends of the podcast and we really value the help and advice we've had from them and they do a great job. For the very latest news from around the learning sector for interviews with learning leaders the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning go to learningnews.com Meet the evolving nature of work with Cornerstone Explore holistic people growth experience that delivers a fully integrated personalized journey of learning skill development and career mobility for every person i'd share all the ways cornerstone explore is designed and personalized for the ways your people want to grow and work but this is only a 30 second ad. to learn how you can unite people growth with business success visit csod.info future ready My second interview at the show was with Caroline Ford, who so capably summed up the conference for us back in episode 12 on our last visit to Learning Technologies two years ago. With more than 90 experts speaking, we couldn't possibly have covered all that went on, even with two of us, so apologies to everyone we left out. But here's our take on what we did see at the conference. So welcome, Caroline.
7: Thank you, John. Always a pleasure.
0: It's two years since uh, we together summed up on the podcast uh, the last learning technologies we went to in person. And that, it was an audio only podcast at that time and now we're in video. So um, we've uh, been very kindly been lent the learning news, stand. Thank you very much, Rob, <laughs> um, to do this. we're going to attempt to wrap up the conference which we've both been at which is an almost impossible task because it's like two days crammed with uh lots of speakers and so on um do you want to kick off with the keynote Matthew Syed? what do you think then
7: i loved this one i actually thought what a brilliant way to start the uh the whole two-day conference um he made some really good points key points here took took us back almost a step in time to Carol Dweck's fixed and growth mindset. That was absolutely at the heart of what he was talking about. And underneath that was a key message about the importance of diversity in the workforce and actually the impact that that can have on the fixed or growth mindset of the people within that workforce.
0: And it was interesting, he wasn't just talking kind of motherhood statements and fridge magnets the way that HR occasionally can. (laughs) about diversity he did get onto some rather difficult things with it didn't he he he
7: did he did uh, he talked about education he talked about demographic backgrounds he talked about diversity in a way that i haven't necessarily heard speakers talk about it before yeah you know he really talked about how organizations have a propensity a little bit for groupthink really that they can recruit homogenous workforces yeah. without really realizing it right. and uh you know he kind of picked on that public education he he kind of looked at the the middle-aged white man which, which i do feel has become a bit of a victim. no offense <laughs> john um but has actually been a bit of a bit of a victim in in recent years but he, he talked about diversity not just being something that you should do because it's the right thing to do but it yeah. needs to be in the context of the problem that you're trying to solve yeah so he talked about mm-hmm. a uh a group that he sits on a committee that he's part of and he talked about his own backgrounds in being a a, a, a ping-pong expert. ping pong expert uh, yeah
0: and from a mixed race
7: mixed race and background
0: and they're advising um mm-hmm. gareth southgate
7: indeed they? yeah this yeah. board
0: of ping-pong experts and people, and Dave Brailsford, who's one of my heroes from cycling, of course, you know. And he talks, and and this was the point he made, I think, was that there's that kind of diversity of disciplines. People from different areas can really bring something. He said that he felt that like demographic diversity wasn't necessarily appropriate in some contexts, And he knew that that was going to be controversial, but although it was interesting that he, he, he went down that route and I uh, exposed some of the um some of the issues there i I, you, I was really embarrassed about that when we got to the end of it. I suddenly realized why I recognized his voice oh because he has a show on Radio four that I'd listen to every episode oh of sideways yes, and um And up to that point i sit there thinking, who is this, <laughs> do you know this guy? <laughs> Who is this people player? anyway yes. we're we're short of time here, so let's move on to who should we do next Itel draw yeah.
7: Yes. Absolutely fantastic. Now he was talking about the way that technology is affecting our brains. Yes, is it making us stupid? It's making us stupid. I was a little bit nervous. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So you know, some of his key points were very much around how is technology affecting our propensity to learn, and indeed, do we need to learn, or can we offload some of what we're learning on that technology? You know, he talked about we no longer need to memorize phone numbers. Why? Because they're all in the phone. Yeah. They're equally in the same breath and sentence. He talks about his children relying overly on their phone and the phone almost becoming a crutch for them. Daddy is always now available on the end of the phone, whereas when he was growing up, if he found himself in a difficult position or situation, he had to learn to think for himself and figure it out. And he's worried that his own children and our children, John, yours and mine, aren't doing that anymore.
0: This is resonating with me, I have a daughter in Japan at this moment working, Uh, she's um, 19 years old, soon to turn 19 years old. And if she suddenly runs out of money, she can ask for it and it can be transferred to it immediately.
7: (laughs) The bank of mum and dad, Yeah, so
0: there's the incentive for thrift, I I want to say that. Yeah, Yeah. the bank of dad is always kind of only a text away, you know. And so that resonated. On the other hand, did you sort of feel towards the end of it that it was a bit like, your granddad in the corner, I'm a grandfather, so I can't, shouldn't be you can say this, your that. granddad in the corner yeah. going, your technology is making you stupid, which I can remember hearing ever since I was about 10 about television and whatever.
7: Well, I, I did a little bit, but he also brought some of that doctorate scientific knowledge to the conversation. Well, it's
0: got the empirical evidence. Indeed. yeah.
7: He said that over 3000 years, and he showed some really impressive pictures of skulls growing in size. He said yes. that the human brain has increased in uh, velocity and size over that 3000 years. Then showed a graph over the last 70, um, and it showed it getting smaller. The our brain is shrinking. actually getting smaller. And our memory is getting worse. So, so there was a real sort of balance here around, you know, balancing out technology. Mm with keeping that learning muscle building and working and and not being overly reliant on algorithms or technology to do some of the jobs that humans do so well.
0: All right, so algorithms brings us on to AI, I think, and personalization. I saw, I'd say, slightly disappointing presentation about that, um, which, just seemed to be about AI, using AI to connect people with content. And, you know, really, I think it could go a bit further than that. Uh, so I dodged out of that one and, and, um, I, I saw Peter Manish Reba giving a very lively, engaging presentation, which I, I wish I'd seen the rest of. Um, and I promptly on the spot while he was talking, uh, sent him a message saying, please come and be on the podcast. And this is exactly so.
7: Fantastic. He yeah. will be an amazing guest if you can get him, John. Definitely.
0: Was there anyone else you've seen that you thought ought to be a good learning hat guest?
7: Well, there was. There was, there was a, a, just my favourite, and I've saved the favourite till last, John. My favourite was Doug Belshaw.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. He's been I, suggested.
7: Yeah, he talked about uh, digital badging and credentials.
0: Micro credentialing. Yeah, yeah. Micro
7: credentials. And so I have to give him absolute kudos, not just because I loved the content, but yeah. because I just thought the delivery of his session was standout for me. And his moderator just did such a brilliant job yeah. of bringing the audience along with the keynote speaker. Right. So what did Doug talk about? He talked about uh, badges not just being pictures, but the importance of metadata and tagging in the back of the badge, uh, so that uh, a recipient had authorization for that badge. It could be tracked back to that person using that metadata. It could use blockchain, but it didn't have to. Oh, interesting. He made yeah. a really good point about that. He also made a point about the most important thing being decoupling the badge from email addresses, something which he said yeah. has been quite common practice in the past. Why was that important? Because people lose their email addresses, John, over time. Yeah. Fact, right? Um, so there were some really interesting things there. He gave some great examples of companies um, using digital badging some universities, some non-universities, the Open University uses them, but also IBM, who is a massive consumer of digital credentials. So really interesting when you're talking in the context of um, skilling and the explosion in the skills revolution learning.
0: I I saw him speaking at this show, not at this venue, but the the show several years ago uh, when he was at Mozilla. And the whole thing over badging went a bit quiet, but it, it seems like blockchain is bringing it back.
7: Definitely, definitely. I think this is one to watch. And I think, uh, Doug's organization, which is actually a cooperative yeah. and which can provide advice and information on many different suppliers of badges yeah. uh, is one to watch. Definitely.
0: Now, I want to talk about um, accidents and mishaps.
7: <laughs> you always like to do this, John.
0: <laughs> well, you know, like a bit of schadenfreude. But I, I think over the last few years, we've been complaining about the Zoom not working and people are on mute and, you know, you don't have the authority and things going wrong with virtual. But what we've remembered, I think, when coming back to in-person shows is that stuff goes wrong at in-person shows. as oh, yes. well. Wow. Yeah. Indeed. Last, last time, two years ago, there was one that we talked about. Have you seen any upsets this time?
7: Well, I did have happen to have a chat with uh, with Rob Hubbard last night, yeah. who did share a couple of uh, incidents and accidents that had happened in in a session that he'd been in. Yeah. Uh, I believe somebody somebody's chair fell off the back of the stage. Wasn't that
0: David Perring from Fosway? Uh,
7: now, I wasn't going to mention names, John. But <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, a he's been a guest. He
0: was one. Yeah. I think it was about the third or fourth guest on the podcast.
7: Yes. Yes. So, yeah.
0: Yeah,
7: yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think Rob himself said he tripped over some cabling or fell yeah. up the stairs. So, I mean, you know, uh, back in person, we're back in a venue. Anything can happen, you know it can.
0: Absolutely. So, what else did you see? Did, did you see some sessions that I wasn't in? Perhaps I, We're going to consult our notes now.
7: I know, we just need to pause for one moment.
0: Maybe. Uh, Oh yes, Julie Dirksen, she was, I have to say, Julie, I I didn't see her session this time, but her her session on the podcast was one of the most popular we've done, and it has one of the highest rates of downloads.
7: Look, I love Julie, I think she's absolutely great, and I do follow her, but this one for me, I don't know. I, I, my understanding was you'd taken a very longer presentation and reduced yeah. it in size. We okay. edited it down uh, quite late in the date. Possibly, who knows? For me maybe it just lacked some of the je ne sais quoi of her um, previous presentations or the podcast episode, which as you say, was really, really popular. Yeah. I think she tried to use an example of it was motivation. It was all about motivation and what motivates the learner. And we looked at several different methods of motivation to engage and, and bring the learner on. Intrinsic, extrinsic, yeah, you yeah. know, we're familiar with some of this stuff. Yeah. She, uh, she used the example of hand washing and, of course, you know, kind of asked us all to hold our, our own hands up and say, how have you been getting on recently with that? <laughs> we all felt a bit guilty. It yeah. slipped a bit. Um, but I just felt that there could have been some more flavour, some different examples. Handwashing was a the theme right the way through. We had an hour. Yeah. Um, but I am very good at handwashing now, and I do know how to motivate yeah. myself to do more of it. And I did feel guilt.
0: I'm very glad to hear it. As, uh, as an ex-Catholic, I'm very glad to hear it. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Bob Mosher, should get a shout out for, for Most Disrupted Travel. I think oh, really? I heard, <laughs> had a terrible time getting here. His plane was cancelled. I talked to him today. I, uh, it's now the second day of the show. First day of the show, he, he couldn't get here at all um, and had to get, I think, the third flight lucky to actually get here. But he did arrive here and, and gave a packed out to a packed out house. He's a very popular speaker.
7: Always popular. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. Always
0: popular. So time is, is our enemy. Are there any others that you want to mention?
7: The one that I was really interested in, obviously, I'm you know working on the skills agenda with Novartis very closely with yeah. um, my colleagues in talent. Yeah. and I recently um, had the opportunity to meet up with Peter Shepherd, so I was really pleased to see that Peter was presenting today with Matthew Smith and Meredith Wellard. Uh, Meredith is from DHL, and uh, uh, Peter is from Ericsson, and um, so it was really really and this interesting. was about skills, wasn't it was it? about skills, the skills of it. agenda. Yeah. So I was really pleased to see some really Fantastic speakers there, just facing some of the same challenges that I face myself every day, as do my colleagues at Advantage, right. trying to unpick the skills conundrum. Uh, DHL has been working with Cornerstone, and I think they've been one of the early adopters or testers of their Explore software. Yeah. So I was really curious to find out from them. Um, Meredith, how that's going. Peter has gone down a different route where he's got lots of different software similar to Novartis and a different taxonomy, trying to piece this together and get all of those systems talking the same skills language using APIs and and structuring things so the user gets a great end user experience. So it it remains a conundrum. Great to hear those three speakers talking and I'll be interested to see how the skills conundrum plays out, John.
0: Well done for mentioning both your employer. (laughs) <laughs> and one of the podcast sponsors. Excellent, good. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think it's time's against as I say. I think now we have to, to give an apology to the, the many fine speakers we didn't mention, Indeed. because there isn't time, and we couldn't get to cover everything, so I would keep dodging down here to talk to people. Yeah. Um, and also a big congratulations to Don and the whole team, and no Mark fine. and Smout, for putting together this amazing in-person show. Um, and getting us back into the real world again.
7: Absolutely. A big thank you to Don. It's been an absolutely standout event, packed to the rafters with uh, top-notch speakers, fantastic vendors, and of course you, John. Pleasure.
0: See you next year.
3: See you next year, (laughs) same time, same place, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's all from this special edition of the Learning Hack podcast from Learning Technologies. Huge thanks are due to Donald Taylor for helping us with this episode, as well as Mark and Ian and all the team at Closer Still, Rob Clark from Learning News, all our guests and interviewees, and of course our sponsors, Learning Pool and Cornerstone. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, you know what to do. Stay curious, learning people.
1: I finally get it.
0: Finally, a sad note to end on. I took time off from the show to attend the funeral of John Harris, who was a frequent visitor to learning technologies. His bold intelligence, humour and kindness will long be remembered by family, friends and past colleagues and clients at Epic,
7: Capita, Sereno, and many other companies.